0: Hello and welcome to this week's How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. This week, we're zooming out from the immediate and pressing anxieties of the global pandemic, all the way out to the beginning of time and the end of the universe. Our guest is the string theorist, Columbia professor and science communicator Brian Green, whose new book until the end of time is nothing less than a tour of reality in search of the meaning of life. Head of a talk at How To Academy, he caught up with broadcaster Matthew Stadlin. Brian Green, it is a great pleasure to be here with you. In London, Thank you very much.
1: This book of yours, Until the End of Time, it's the most extraordinary riot or, or romp or charge through humanity, through science, through the meaning of life, through pretty much everything, perhaps apart from cricket. Yes. <laughs> what, cricket didn't make it in. What are you aiming for? What, what's the ambition here? Because it is a profoundly ambitious work.
2: Well, the goal, the ambition is to tell a coherent narrative that takes us from the Big Bang and heads as close as science can possibly take us to the end of time, and within that grand cosmic unfolding, to understand where life comes from, where consciousness comes from, and then to ask the question, what do we conscious beings do when we stand up, look around, contemplate the past, think about the present, and wonder about the future? What do we do?
1: And that takes us to all of the things that make us us. It's an admirably brief summary. And I'm going to ask you to continue along this vein because we only have half an hour in which to chat. So let's in synopsis form break some of these things down. For idiots like me who got 29% in a physics test when I was about 14, 15, what is the Big Bang? Big Bang is our understanding
2: of how the universe evolved from a split second after whatever it was that brought it into existence, and we describe it as a rapid swelling of space, universe gets larger and larger, and within that expanding universe, structures begin
1: to form like stars and planets. And give us a sense of the, the sheer magnitude of the things that were happening in split seconds after the Big Bang.
2: Yeah, our, our refined theories tell us that in a tiny fraction of a second, say 10 to the minus 35
1: seconds, I mean, that's mind-bogglingly tiny. Far, far too tiny for any sort of calculator, obviously. Yeah, and far
2: too tiny to almost even give any analogy. The, the words we use, blink of an eye, blink of an eye is an eternity compared to the length scales or distance and times we're talking about here. But in that brief moment, the universe swelled, we believe, from smaller than an atomic nucleus to larger than the
1: observable cosmos. So this is a momentous swelling of the fabric of space. Given that it is a fairly fundamental aspect of being a human being, the fact that we are alive, isn't it kind of remarkable that we aren't absolutely certain how life came into existence or indeed when? Yeah, I mean, it's
2: it's a wonderful state of affairs that you can exist and live and think without understanding the processes by which you live and exist and think. But we are curious, and so we have spent a lot of our energy trying to unravel the processes that give rise to life, that give rise to mind, as that helps
1: us understand who we are, where we came from. Help me understand, help me to conceptualize, if that's even possible, what happened before the Big Bang? Or is that the wrong way even of phrasing the question? It's it's an interesting question and that description
2: of it perhaps being the wrong way of phrasing the question may be the answer. You know, it's look, it's possible that the Big Bang was an interesting event in a pre-existing universe that had a lot of other events that happened before the Big Bang. That's a possibility. But it could be that time itself begins at the Big Bang. In which case the notion of before the Big Bang wouldn't really make sense, just like it would make no sense to say, how do you go further north than the North Pole? That's where north begins. You can't go further north than that point on Earth. Maybe you can't go further back in time than the moment when time begins, which may have been the Big Bang. Tell me, again, in summary form about black holes, Brian. Yeah. Black holes are regions of the universe in which a lot of matter, a lot of mass is crushed into a very small volume. And the gravity, therefore, is so powerful that anything which gets too close, and by anything, I really do mean anything. Even a beam of light, if it gets too close, can't pull away. It can't escape the gravitational pull. So the region
1: goes dark because light can't get out. It goes black, and that's why we call it a black hole. Just today, I saw in the press that a meteorite is going to come relatively close to Earth. We think. How concerned should we be about meteorites, and why on Earth isn't more being done yeah. to protect? the world from such an eventuality? Uh, It's the the right question to ask. And look, in a book that's called Until the End of
2: Time, you kind of don't want time to end too soon. And if we were to get slammed by a, a powerful asteroid, that could spell the end of, say, life, or at least our form of life on planet Earth. So should we be worried not about the one that's coming up because it's sufficiently far away that we don't have to be concerned, But we need to be vigilant and scour the heavens to ensure that we are aware of these rocks that are hurtling through space. And we already know that
1: one wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. We don't want to be the dinosaurs. Do you think we have the capacity to develop a technology that could blast such a meteorite away from us, should it be necessary?
2: Without a doubt. You know, if we as a planet were to work together, pool our resources, we could absolutely protect the planet. But what do we do? We spend our resources trying to kill each other, and that's not very productive. Now, we can read across that thought onto climate change, can't we? Yeah, of course. It's another one of those towering challenges that we face. And if the world could somehow get together, put greed to the side, and focus on the species as a whole, yeah, these are things that we could lick quickly and and profoundly if we'd only view it as a common threat
1: as opposed to, you know, hoping somebody else will take care of it. Do you look at the superstructures that we have in the world, the the big multi-state organizations, and think we've got it sorted or not? No, of course not. You know, we are so
2: focused on our group, on our tribe. I mean, even in the United States, right, The red and the blue are at each other's throats, and decisions are made not based on looking at a proposed policy and evaluating it. They're decisions based on, does my group like it, or does my group hate it? And that's how decisions are made, and that is a very poor way of making
1: policy decisions for a country or for the planet entropy is a word that keeps recurring in the book tell us about that entropy is a measure
2: of disorder so it's something that we're familiar with in everyday life if your desktop is filled with papers and paper clips all strewn all over the place that's got a high amount of disorder a lot of entropy but if your desktop is completely arranged papers all nice stacked and pencils in their holder and so forth that is a low state of entropy a low state of disorder and we're also familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, which basically states that there is an overwhelming tendency for order to decay into disorder, for your ordered desk to become disordered. It's rare that you come home and your disordered desk has somehow arranged itself, and it's now nice and pristine. And that idea is relevant to the universe because the universe is heading toward a state of ever greater Disorder Structures tend to wither away, fall apart. And in the book, Until the End of Time, I describe how in the very far future, entropy will win and things will fall apart into their constituent particles.
1: And how does human life, day-to-day human experience, in real terms, reflect entropy? Well... We are collections
2: of particles that are governed by physical law. So we also obey the second law of thermodynamics. And the way that manifests itself in everyday life is we eat organized structures in the world. I'm vegan, so it's mostly plants and nuts. We eat those ordered structures. We use that energy to keep our entropy low. And then we release waste heat to the environment. And that waste heat causes the entropy of the overall world to go up. So you and I are nothing but conduits that take ordered things from the environment,
1: process them, and give off disordered waste, making the overall entropy go up. And how do we juggle in our minds? How do we conceptualize the fact that that we are not much more in one sense than a bunch of particles, but also that we are capable of this remarkable thing called consciousness? Yeah, well, I think... To have a full
2: understanding of the world, and that's really the theme of the book, you need a sequence of nested stories. You need to take all of these qualities of existence into account. The physicist story, as you say, is particles and laws that govern the fundamental ingredients. The chemist story builds on that to get atoms and molecules. The biologist builds on that to get cells and life. And then you're to the realm of the psychologist and the neuroscientist and the philosopher who look at living conscious beings and ask what it is that they do to make sense of the world. And that involves all of the things that we
1: reflective human beings do. We've gone back as far as the Big Bang. We've also taken in the the blasting away of the dinosaurs. Yeah. How far forward can we go? Well, if you
2: trust the laws of physics, and as a physicist I, I do trust the laws of physics, you can use them to turn the cosmic film quite far into the future. And in the book, I go as far as roughly 10 to the 100 years into the future. We're now 10 to the 10 years since the Big Bang. So I'm going exponentially further forward in time than we have gone back in time using our mathematics. Do you take
1: solace or does it scare you how terrifically insignificant we are as individual human beings, given the scale of of what you're talking about in the book?
2: Well, I I take solace and I also see wonder in it. Here we are, these little collections of particles crawling around on this nondescript planet orbiting an ordinary star, and yet through the power of thought and calculation, we've been able to figure out so much about the universe, going back to the beginning and looking far forward into the future. And to me, that's
1: remarkable. That's the quality that we should all be immensely proud of. You're able to see wonder in the vast scale that we're talking about. But you're also able to see wonder in Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You're able to see wonder in the fact that Beethoven was able to compose the Ninth Symphony when he was deaf. Yes, and to me, I recognize through these feats, these
2: achievements, what a mere collection of particles governed by physical law can do. To me, it's even more remarkable than coming to the conclusion that there's some external force that gives us some kind of, say, divine inspiration. I think it's more remarkable that you don't need anything else. The laws of physics, the particles that make up matter when appropriately configured into a body and, say, a human brain can produce, as you're saying, the Ninth Symphony or the Mona Lisa or the pyramids or send a rocket to the moon. That is amazing. How do you understand free will? Well, I don't think it exists. So my view of it is that the decisions we make and the choices that we exert on the world around us, those feel like they come from us. The sensation of free will is a real sensation. But since we are fully governed by physical law, the
1: mathematical equations dictate the Unfolding doesn't it follow from that though, of course that we can then abrogate responsibility for moral choices How is it that as a society we can justify putting people in prison for murder or whatever it is if you're right? Yeah, the answer to that
2: is yeah, I believe you need to have a so-called Consequentialist view of why it is that you impose a prison sentence or any kind of punishment on somebody It's not for retribution that kind of a punishment wouldn't make much sense in a world that doesn't have free will. But in a world that has free will, there can still be learning. A bunch of particles can learn how to behave by virtue of seeing what happens to another collection of particles. So by punishing someone whose behavior we deem to be morally wrong, we are helping others to come to the conclusion that those behaviors should not be repeated. And that can bring us toward a better overall society by virtue of this kind of a punitive approach. But you're still suggesting agency there? Not necessarily. Learning can happen in a world absent free will. Do you have a Roomba at home? Do you know that little device that cleans your floor and goes around? No,
1: I'm not nearly so tech savvy.
2: Okay, so imagine that you did. When you watch a Roomba going around your house, it bumps into the wall, it hits a piece of furniture, and it stores that information so next time it doesn't bump into the wall or hit that piece of furniture. Does it have free will? I don't think it does. But its particle arrangement can rearrange its pattern so that its future behavior can be more efficient and consonant with its design. We are like the Roomba. Our particle arrangement can change in order that our behavior, our responses to stimuli, is more in keeping with what another group of particles called society wants
1: to watch happen. So you don't have to have agency to learn. Should we try to be good or should we not bother? If everything is preordained, and I'm assuming that you do believe that every single thing is merely the consequence of a chain reaction, why bother trying to be virtuous? Modulo quantum mechanics, which is a subtlety we probably
2: don't want to go into, but I'll, I'll say yes, just for the purpose of the discussion. And look, if you truly have free will, then the decisions that you are pointing toward, you know, do I want to be good, do I want to be moral, are, are real choices. But in a world that doesn't have free will... Even that act is not something free. So that act is something that is also part of the physical unfolding. So the question doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense if one is going to buy into this notion that free will at its rock bottom description is an illusion. So what is the meaning of life? Well, this cosmological journey, going from the beginning to the end and seeing where life and mind fit in, and it's a little tiny window on the cosmological timeline, to my mind, it focuses our attention on how remarkable it is that we are here, right? We're the product of quantum laws that could have yielded one outcome versus another against astounding odds. All of the pieces have come together to yield you and me and everybody else, and that, to me, instills a deep sense of gratitude, a deep sense of reverence for being here at all. And it's not even that we're just here. We can do the remarkable things that you made mention of through a flitting burst of activity, create beauty, experience wonder, illuminate mystery. And those qualities, to me, are what make life worth living. And that's where meaning and purpose comes from. It's the here and the now that we impose on the external world. It's not out there waiting for our discovery And that to me, again, I feel makes it more noble than just living some other
1: purposeful existence that's imposed on us by something out there in the world. problem for me, of course, is that without free will, I think much, if not all of that nobility is stripped away. Yeah, I don't think so. And I understand where you're coming from. But in the
2: book, I describe an alternate conception of freedom, not freedom of the will, but freedom to have a wide behavioral repertoire that's not available to inanimate objects for the most part. A cup of water just sits there no matter what you do. You can move it around a little bit, but it's never going to do anything creative. We have such a range of behavioral responses because our particles are so exquisitely configured that they can execute these wondrous behaviors. And that to me is where my sense of uh, agency, if you will, comes from. Not that I'm freely choosing my actions, but my actions have such a broad behavioral repertoire that they distinguish me from a rock, from a table, from a glass of water. And that to me is good enough. How compatible is God with your understanding of the universe? Look, God could be behind it all and we could be living out God's plan, right? And if God was sufficiently clever, God could make him or herself or whatever their right pronoun is invisible to us, and that could be the story. I see no evidence for that. I admit that I can't rule it out. And religion more generally, though, I consider to be a valuable part of the human story to understand who we are and, and how to live in this world. I don't see religion as something that is trying to explain the objective external world, that's what science is good for. And science is spectacularly good at describing qualities of the reality that we inhabit. But the inner journey to figure out conscious awareness and to figure out what it means to be part of this universe and to have a sensation of what things matter or not for some, the guidance from religious practice
1: can be quite potent in that regard. Just so I understand, the extent of your belief or lack of belief in God. I mean, is God as unlikely as a flying pink elephant? Well, it depends what you mean by God. So if you
2: mean the traditional description that comes out of some of the world's religions where you envision that there's actually a being floating out there, yeah, then that one, I I don't see how how that squares with our understanding of the world. But if you have a more abstract notion of God, which is more the harmony of the universe, the unity of the qualities that make up the world, and the wonder of being a self-reflective conscious being who can take in the world— some would call that God, some would call that experience sort of a a God-like way of inhabiting the world. And from that perspective, that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: You've done a lot of thinking about thinking.
2: What are your conclusions? Well, I think thinking is a good thing. I'm glad that I'm able to do it and others as well. And I have come to believe that thought, And consciousness are, again, nothing but a collection of particles moving through a gloppy, gray, three-pound structure that sits on top of my shoulders. That doesn't diminish thought or consciousness, but it does, again, show the wonder of what the laws of physics acting on particles can do.
1: One of your mini chapters in the book is entitled Sex and Cheesecake. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us why.
2: Well, the question arises, why do we, for instance, make art? right? You would think that, you know, sharpening spears or gathering more fruit would be more adaptively beneficial to our ancient forebears than painting on cave walls or chiseling figurines. And yet our forebears did undertake those artistic activities. And one suggestion of an answer for why we did comes from Charles Darwin. And he said, look, It's basically sexual selection, a version of natural selection where the females typically in a given species are going to be more attracted to certain males for certain aesthetic reasons. The peacock and the peahen is a prototypical example. Why does a peacock have such a beautiful resplendent tail? It makes it hard for it to run. It makes it easy for predators to see it. Answer, we believe, peahens like those big tails. And therefore, those are the peacocks that mate. And produce progeny that themselves will also have big tails. Since Daddy had one, Junior will have one too. So it's a way of thinking about art emerging from a version of natural selection that focuses upon those
1: beings that are more likely
2: to reproduce.
1: How much do we not yet understand that we will, as a species, come to understand, do you think? A lot. You know, where, Can you even begin to quantify it?
2: Well, it's hard to. I mean, is there a, a limitless it?
1: extent of what we could understand?
2: There are some questions and journeys that will come to an end. For instance, I'm a particle physicist, part of my day job, and I do think that one day we will understand the fundamental particles and the fundamental laws that govern them. Maybe we have that information even now. That's a bit of hubris, but at some point, that story, that chapter, will be written. But then when we go forward and truly try to understand the deep interior of a black hole, or the question you asked, what happened before the Big Bang, or what really brought the universe into existence at the Big Bang, these are questions that we do not know the answer to yet. They're important questions, and I think we will one day resolve them. We've
1: talked about intent. We've talked about whether there's free will. We've talked about thought. What's happening with feelings, love, pride? I'm proud of my bird book, How to See Birds. What's going on when I feel that feeling? Yeah, uh, I know those feelings, and I respect those feelings, and I'm not denigrating those
2: feelings by saying that they are themselves the product of particles moving through your brain in a particular pattern, firing off certain neurons that yield the sensations that you call love or pride or things of that sort. So again... It is a remarkable thing that we can have this inner world, that the lights are on, and we have this inner voice and these inner sensations and the inner feelings that we can articulate.
1: But they are, in my view, nothing more than particles governed by physical law. I've asked you how much capacity there is for more learning generally. How much more do you think there is still to understand Of the human brain itself? A lot. You know, we're at the beginning stage of mapping out the brain and truly understanding
2: the functions of its parts and how those functions are carried out and the correlation between certain physical processes in the brain and certain sensations that we have as a result of those processes. These are at the beginning stages. And the big question, the open question, is can we ever truly, fully understand conscious awareness. I have been saying that it emerges from the motion of particles. That is more a belief than something that we've proven. Science has moved in the direction that I think many scientists come to the same conclusion, but not everybody. And maybe one day there'll be a big surprise and we learn that there's something else to
1: consciousness beyond what the physicists believe is going on inside of a brain. You're interested, as we've discussed, in order and disorder. I wonder to what extent you feel that we have got politics right, that it is properly ordered. Let's take America as yeah. as, as, as an interesting example. It's election year, of course. How how well do you think Americans do politics? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's like you know, it, it it is so not correct.
2: It is so not driven by rational evaluation of ideas and policies and ways that we want to be as a people and as a nation. We are totally driven by what group are we part of? Do we want to be on the red side or the blue side? And do we want to follow this or that policy because the rest of our group is following this or that policy? That's not the way to run a nation. It's not the way to make decisions. So I think we've got it quite wrong. Have you got answers? Have you got solutions? Look, you need a leader, and I don't see that leader on the horizon, who can galvanize people and break through the groupthink that many people are subject to by virtue of the tribe to which they belong And instill a sense of the future and the possibility of the future and the challenges and the opportunities and get people excited about what we could have on this planet. The opportunities that we have are enormous if we would stop wasting resources on things that ultimately are destructive. And I think the right leader who can fire up people, who can reach them, not just in their heads, but in their hearts and have them recognize what we could have if we would only work together—that could be transformative. Are you tempted
1: by politics? You know, on occasion I think about it, but it's you speak well. Well, oh, you, thank you. You. <laughs> you, have, you have an unusual capacity to be both highly articulate but also passionate in the way you come across. Well, I appreciate that, you know. But um, you know, the
2: big questions are the ones that really have fired me up, and in politics, it's very small and incremental. Not that the issues are not vital. But to really transform the world is a very difficult challenge probably harder than solving the equations of string theory but yeah I do I do flirt with the idea in the back of my mind who knows maybe one
1: day head in that direction do you think we have a problem as human beings in absorbing and accepting far too easily modern technologies That's a tricky question because the modern technologies, are so
2: appealing by virtue of the opportunities that they offer us to make life easier, right? I resisted getting a cell phone for a very, mobile phone for a very, very long time. I did not want to have a device on my body that someone could ring whenever they wanted to talk to me. It seemed utterly insane. And yet now I can't live without the damn thing. So I totally get the urge to adopt these technologies, but... I just wish that we had more clear understanding of what they are doing to us long term. When I see my kids who won't get off their phones or the moment they have free brain space, they turn to their phone. I say to myself, how are they going to have creative thoughts? Creative thoughts come from the brain just being able to meander around the space of ideas and not being distracted every moment that it has free by looking at
1: this little screen. So it worries me. I love that you said you resisted getting a cell phone or a mobile phone, implying that you had some sort of agency in that. Well, it's so easy, isn't it? No, that, that's a very good point. point. The language of free will will right. always be with us
2: because the illusion is so powerful and probably adaptively beneficial that it's worthwhile for us to see the world as if we did have free agency. But it's
1: good in the back of your mind to at the same time recognize that you don't. How excited are you by the rest of your life And how does that contrast with any fear you might have that, like me, you're going to die? Well, the fear of death, I think, is a powerful, motivating force,
2: and it's a force that people have discussed throughout the ages. There's a beautiful book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death. If you haven't read it, it's worth looking at, where he makes a strong argument that much of what we do as human beings, the motivation for what we do can be traced back to our singular realization. There is no other species that has this realization that we are impermanent. And to me, that is a driving force in what I do. And to be absolutely clear, when we die, what happens? Well, who knows for sure, but certainly one possibility and the one that I suspect is true, when we die, it's over. Our particle arrangement will disintegrate. It will no longer be able to carry out the thoughts and behaviors that define us, and we will conclude
1: our presence on planet Earth. And we now have to conclude this podcast because you've got to go on stage at the Emanuel Centre. Brian Green, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very
0: much. This week's podcast starred Brian Green and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. As ever, if you enjoyed this week's show, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If the show has whetted your appetite for more science and philosophy, visit us at howtoacademy.com for interviews with Neil deGrasse Tyson, Marcus de Sotoy, Gina Rippon, and many more. Stay safe, and thanks for listening.